I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Seth, how's it going? It's going. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. I well, happy church new church year. year to you. Thank you. We're we're approaching the first Sunday in Advent. It's an exciting time. Exciting time of hope and expectation. And I hope that you are expecting a really important question this morning. Oh, I am, as always. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want your ears and your eyes or your ears and your nose to be switched on your face <laughs> in terms of the location of where they are? If I switch my eyes and my nose, do I... S- no, your ears your ears are switching either way. Oh, my ears either are switching. I thought my eyes were Or with your nose. Either way. Okay. So you can either switch. So you're switching <laughs> your ears with either your eyes or with your nose. And yes, you would have one ear and two noses okay, that's if you what switched I your ears and your nose. <laughs> okay. Now that we've maybe understood the question, which I realize is very confusing. <laughs> well, I... All the functionality would remain the same. Okay, just the look It would is just be in just... different locations. Okay. <laughs> I think I would switch my ears and my nose. Okay, say more. I was just thinking, it would look strange, but you could pass it off maybe as, like, not as weird. (laughs) I don't know. Well, what would would masks have to look like in that situation? Because you'd have to wear, like, earmuffs, too, to come... (laughs) Or I guess they'd be nose muffs. Could you tell, like, you use your ears you can to tell which direction sounds right. sounds come from? Yeah. Can you do that with smells? Just, like, you could... I would hope that's so. That's what I'm thinking. I would think so, too. I just... I feel like the adjustment would be really challenging either way. But I feel like having your eyes on the front of your face is just more... More important. Yes, like that's the most important location I was of that the too. options that are available. And I'm also wondering if you had an ear where your nose was. You know how your ears on the side of your head are like a half moon shape. It would would be it just a be a circular ear? Like it took <laughs> like one ear, one ear hole. I think so. Oh, this is so bizarre and kind of weird. You would really about. be able to hear your own chewing. Ugh. Oh, that would be terrible! Oh my God, you'd also have to be very directional in your. You're listening. You'd have to look at whatever you were listening to. <laughs> but I'm, I'm with you. I think our note, our scent distinction, of like, oh, those cinnamon rolls are on my right. <laughs> I think that would be an added benefit as well. 
I like that you chose the cinnamon oh. rolls to smell. That would be weird, though, you, you know, with your eyes on the side of your head. Your peripheral vision would be kind of your normal frame of vision. I feel like you could see a lot more. I just don't know if I could recover yeah, from Yeah, that's it. what I and think. Also, I don't... How would we wear glasses? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we'd only have one ear. No, you'd still have you'd still have two ears, but they'd be where your oh, eyes are. Oh, you're right. <laughs> I keep mixing but up also, all how the would options. You, how would you wear glasses if you had noses for ears, though? Would they have to like go in the noses? That'd be sure, uncomfortable. Maybe. I'm very concerned. I think we should move on to the script. <laughs> Deal. Great. Will you read it for us? I'd love to. And I'm interested to see how this connects to our scripture. This is Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 9, from the New International Reader's Version. I wish you would open up your heavens and come down to us. I wish the mountains would tremble when you show your power. Be like a fire that causes twigs to burn. It also makes water boil. So come down and make yourself known to your enemies. Cause the nations to shake with fear when they see your power. Long ago, you did some wonderful things we didn't expect. You came down and the mountains trembled when you showed your power. No one's ears have ever heard of a God like you. No one's eyes have ever seen a God who is greater than you. No God but you acts for the good of those who trust in him. You come to help those who enjoy doing what is right. You help those who thank you for teaching them how to live. But when we continued to disobey you, you became angry with us. So how can we be saved? All of us have become like someone who is unclean. All the good things we do are like dirty rags to you. All of us are like leaves that have dried up. All our sins sweep us away like the wind. No one prays to you. No one asks for help. You have turned your face away from us. You have let us feel the effects of our sins. Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. Your hands made all of us. Don't be so angry with us, Lord. Don't remember our sins anymore. Please have mercy on us. All of us belong to you. And as always, why did you choose the New International Reader's Version this week? Okay, so another new translation this week that honestly came to mind as I was remembering some days uh, when I was younger, some groups that were intentionally doing programming for children or teenagers often use this translation. It comes from the same translation committee, or at least a subset of the folks that put together the NIV, but it's designed for a more accessible reading level. So you notice that where a passage like this might have a lot of run-on sentences, these ones are very succinct and uh, broken up into really manageable pieces and, and sections. The language might be simplified in a way that has that, honestly, that translation bias in mind. Like we are translating this to be the most readable, not necessarily the most literally accurate to what may have originally been written. Uh, and I thought for for passages like these in Isaiah, I think having that measure of accessibility can be helpful for us to kind of unpack what folks were thinking about. So as you read through that though, Seth, what stood out to you? The beginning feels very different than the end did to me. Like when, mm -hmm. when I read the beginning, I thought, oh, this is going to be so happy. 
oh, I wish you would open up your heavens and come down to us. Like, it's like looking forward to this, this expectant joy. And then I got to toward the bottom and it was all the good things we do are like dirty rags to you. And I was like, okay, this really took a turn. The way that this passage moves from what I thought was being hopeful to not being hopeful seemingly much at all. And the way that all hinges on, I think it's line six. But when we continued to disobey you, you became angry with us. So how can we be saved? Like what a, what a crux is that line? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, the thought that came through from that dynamic that you mentioned and kind of revisiting the earlier parts that might sound a little more hopeful, the dynamic for me is this feeling of God's absence there's still some measure of belief in God, but there's this desire, this crying out for God to kind of return and do things the way God used to, at least in the, the author's experience here. And honestly, knowing the context of this part of Isaiah, that kind of declaration makes a lot of sense. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but Isaiah is a really complex book. It's really three books knit together. They're similar in their thought and processes, but there are some distinctions. First Isaiah runs from chapter 1 to 39. Second Isaiah from chapter 40 to 55. And then third Isaiah, where we are focused today, is chapters 56 through the end of the book in chapter 66. So we're right here at the end of the whole book of Isaiah and third Isaiah And really the major distinction between these three Isaiahs, so to speak, is the time period that they cover. And third Isaiah is focused on like some overlap between the exile and the return of the people of Israel to the promised land after the Babylonian exile. So a lot Mm -hmm. of folks have focused in on how this timing, where people may be, can you imagine returning to the homeland of your ancestors that has been kind of talked up in so many ways and returning to find it nothing like it was supposed to be and how connected those original generations of Israel were to the, to the land as an experience of the divine. Mm -hmm. I think that disconnect with how those stories lined up with their reality would also really affect how they viewed their interactions with their interactions with God too. Mm -hmm. If things aren't like they used to be, how can we have any hope that God will do what God used to do? Hmm. And so you see that throughout this passage too. Like that's, so that's, I wish the mountains would tremble when you show your power. You know, long ago you did some wonderful things we didn't expect. You came down and the mountains trembled when you showed your power. It's this longing, this repeated longing for God to do what God used to do. Hmm. Hmm. And even in the midst of this questioning, this longing for God's presence, there's still these statements of praise, almost as if the author is appealing to God, appealing to God's character, trying to butter God up a little bit even (laughs) to encourage God to act. So yeah, I think you picked up on a really important theme here, that there's this language that really sounds hopeful, but when threaded throughout this passage that we read, it seems to be functioning a little bit differently. What else stood out to you? Another line that really interests me is no one prays to you. No one asks you for help. You have turned your face away from us. You have left us feel the effects of our sin. That's that whole line is, is like a fascinating juxtaposition to me. 
Because it's like, we're, we don't want to pray to you. But you also have turned your face from us. You don't want to listen to us either. Like, it's, it's like a quid pro quo. Sure, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, and I wonder, I wonder how those things are related to each other in the author's mind, too. Is it because no one prays to God that God has turned away? Or is it this expression of kind of a mutual a mutual turning? Um, I think I would lean towards the, the first option just based on what we've talked about so far and kind of how some of the some of the other pieces in this passage, um, you know, it, it talks about when we continued to disobey you, you became angry with us. You said before all the good things we do are like dirty rags. It's like there's there's been enough damage done, so to speak, that it almost can't be can't be fixed. Or <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just feels like this sense of abandonment, a sense of really limited hope, feeling dire. Is this really? I, I don't know. I, I just found this passage really moving. Honestly, like I feel like there's a kind of raw authenticity of the human experience in a moment of real tragedy too especially at the end like that struck me so much when i was reading i guess because it they moved to some from some sort of longing to like they moved from some sort of longing to being dejected and then it seems like there's real hope at the end we're your clay you are the potter yeah. Even when people don't want to pray and God seems to have turned God's face away, there's this there's this trust mm-hmm. and this like this idea of belonging, right? That's the last line, I guess. All of us belong to you. And that's true even in the midst of all the all this this like disconnect that the writer's experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. And it I don't know, have you have you heard that uh, God is the potter, we are the clay imagery before. Have, yeah. How have you heard that taught? Like, what, what have been some of the implications of that kind of relationship? I can't really think of, like, any specific context, to be honest. But I've definitely heard that. Like, I feel like people just throw that around, if I can use it that way. Like, oh, God's the potter, and we're the clay. And I'm like, okay, well, like, give me a little bit more. Well, maybe we can explore some of that now then. In the way that that might typically be framed, what are the implications of a relationship where God is the potter and we are the clay? Yeah, there's some sort of sense of mastery, if I can call it that, which is interesting to me. Like we're, we're in the first Sunday of Advent, but we just had Christ the King Sunday last week. Like thinking about this relationship between a, a potter and it's clay and like a king and it's his subjects or is is interesting to me like there's there's a categorical difference between the two between the creator the potter and it's clay but there's still this like deep care for one that the potter has for the clay yeah absolutely i i think you're i think you're spot on there I think one of the things that comes through for me as well, kind of on the flip side of that, is the real limited agency the that clay. the clay has. Yeah, and um, there's there's the sense of the clay is only good for 
what the potter can make of it. Mm-hmm. And what the potter can make of it is incredible. But there's just something there that maybe feels like it seems in tension with some other images of our relationship with God that come through in other parts of scripture even. I, I think the context of this passage with that image, though, is really powerful. Because this is not this is not someone from on high saying, I'm the potter, you're the clay, <laughs> yeah. in a like, yeah. real dominating way. This is actually coming from the person who's in a situation of desperation, looking to turn themselves over for some sort of help, some sort of solution, some sort of aid in the midst of their hopelessness. And so at that point, I think that image is incredibly powerful, that when you feel like you don't have any agency left, you can turn yourself over to the divine potter who can take the mess that you're in and form it and shape it into something beautiful. Hmm. And so I, I think that context is really important because, you know, there's, you could talk about language like surrender or submission, and those are often so emphasized and so prioritized in living out the Christian faith. And I want to just suggest that maybe those ideas are less idealized in scripture and more so are just the points where people happen to be, where the people of God, where the people of Israel happen to be when they're crying out for God's help. Because so often when we're in our in our more comfortable settings and contexts, we highlight these things or we manipulate these ideas to hurt others, to glorify suffering in a way that perpetuates a lot of harm. And I wonder instead if we could make our framework, and this kind of transitions too, as we have been a little bit through this, transitions more into a conversation about what's the point. But thinking about where we turn when things feel hopeless, or what do we do when it feels like God has abandoned us? By shifting the focus of the idea of surrender to someone who's kind of at the end of their rope, rather than someone who's kind of out of their place and needs to be put into their place, Hmm. I think we can ask those kinds of questions of how we respond faithfully when we're feeling the most desperate and most hopeless. I know that was a lot, (laughs) but I was just reflecting a lot on that Potter-Clay relationship, and some pieces of it just left me a little bit uncomfortable, but knowing that it was coming from a real place of desperation actually made it feel a little more empowering, honestly, than just like, I'm a lump of clay, and if if God's spinning me on the wheel and I'm coming up crooked, God's just going to smash me down again. (laughs) But thinking about it instead of of that is what I said, you know, God making something beautiful out of the mess that I'm in when I'm at the end of my rope. That that feels a little more inviting to me. I especially like your point that how being the clay just happens to be the position that God's people find themselves in as opposed to this like this frequent call to surrender and and submission like that assumes people people are somewhat comfortable and they have to move down the ladder if i can say it that way right this already assumes the being clay like people are people are already down like they're they happen to be in this this precarious position like how how does that position shape the way that we hear this i think that that was that's an important point 
Well, I can talk about how I respond when I'm down. The way, the way I usually don't respond uh, is by praying. And usually the way I do respond is just like overanalyzing, thinking, mm. like dwelling on what's like what's happened, how I can get out of this situation. My default position isn't one of tr- trusting God as the potter, but like figuring out how I as the clay can start molding myself, right? And like shaping my own circumstances and what I, what I can do to try and get out of this. Yeah. I think on the flip side for me, I'm very much a type of person who when, uh, when I'm facing something that's really difficult, I want to kind of numb myself from that experience. So whether that's just like sitting on the couch and watching a bunch of TV or eating a lot of food, usually not the healthiest (laughs) food either. uh, Those are usually my big go-tos. It's just this desire to not feel, Hmm. not feel that hopelessness, not feel that struggle. And I I don't want to read this into, like I want you to speak to this, Seth, because I don't want to like assign this on your experience, but I think there's some of that in how you're responding too. Like if I can pick this apart enough, I can understand it without having to feel the the tension, without having to feel the desperation, exactly. and it, and it's like it's it's multiple sides to the same coin, same twenty sided die, if you will, <laughs> of ways that we avoid experiencing the types of feelings that this author was experiencing when when the words of Isaiah sixty four were penned. There, there's truth to be said that. Maybe sometimes we don't feel like we're getting to the end of our rope because of our social location and uh, you know the privileges we experience based on the way our society is ordered. I think there's also reality to the fact that we have these coping mechanisms where we don't allow ourselves to get to the end of our rope. Mm-hmm. And, and some of those can be really healthy, right? Like really important self-care techniques or you know seeking and benefiting from a healthy counseling relationship or something. Like there are resources and things in place to help us cope with difficult circumstances. And that's part of growing and becoming more mature. But there are always going to be circumstances that pull us right back down, even, even if we've endured it all before. And, I, and I'm thinking about communities in particular that have been, that have been more drastically affected by, by situations that might, as a community, pull them to the end of their rope more, whether that be a faith community or a community identified around a particular demographic identification. It's really hard to think about, but there's just so much that goes on in the world that can so easily pull us, pull us back down to the end of that rope. Yeah. I wonder how much the situation of COVID-19 in general has, has done that for a lot of people has, has prevented us from using some of the coping mechanisms that we had practiced and been accustomed to yeah. like it's it's forced people to to reevaluate those or you know just cut them off completely absolutely i mean even thinking about for how many people is exercise a really important coping coping mechanism i know it was for me before and like i have chosen other things and it's been hard to choose that option too mm-hmm. based on what's closed and what's open and everything and what's safe to do but even just connecting with others, yeah. you know, being being able to sit down and have a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, or a good meal with a good friend, 
I mean, this episode is coming out on Thanksgiving weekend, and how many of us have experienced something wildly different? Thanksgiving with a lot of family isn't always the most enjoyable (laughs) experience, but at the end of the day, there is often something really meaningful about connecting with others around a table, and that experience has been taken away. And for those of us that participate in faith communities, you know, I've I've worshipped in person three times since Mm -hmm. March. Yeah. Those were all outdoors, distanced, or you know, a small enough group indoors that it, you know, it's been, it was deemed safe at the <laughs> yeah, time yeah. with some work. You know, that's something that I really miss too is that that ability for connection right now, that very almost baseline coping mechanism. Like, hey, can I just talk to someone about this? Like, yes, we have the miracles of Zoom and phones that do in fact work for calling people too, <laughs> not just for sending messages. And yet, our ability to connect with each other in the midst of one of the most trying times I think I've ever experienced, for sure, it's so, so limited. I agree. I haven't been to an in-person service since March 11th. It's been a long, it's been a long time. And at first I thought, well, this, this is fine being online. And then it dragged on and on, and I thought, well, it'd be nice to see some of these people again. And I kept zooming and zooming, and I thought, it'd be nice to see these people in person again. Yeah. Right? And then it was like, I I kept texting people and texting people, and I thought, it would be nice if I could see them in person again. And you're right, I think that this is just like an extraordinary time that has pushed a lot of those a lot of those situations in which I wouldn't even have identified it as a coping mechanism, I wouldn't have thought about church that way, um, has made me realize that it at least functions partially as that for me. That it gives me something that was that was static, uh, that was sure, that I could hold on to. That's kind of been that's there, but but in a different way. Yeah, which has which has made this whole pandemic situation harder than I thought it was going to be. I thought, I'll just speak for myself. I thought I was prepared for the sprint. I wasn't prepared for the the marathon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my work to go through my contact list and text people and catch up with them, like that was all March, April <laughs> time. And I did a lot more game nights and other things, like just filling up the calendar almost every night with some sort of virtual activity. Yeah, that's that's certainly slowed down. Yeah, and I guess maybe to kind of bring the conversation towards a close and loop back to our scripture too. I'm wondering how we depend on our relationship with God as a coping mechanism in these times too. And I both say our to talk about you and me individually, but also for the community of faith at large, what does our relationship with God prompt us to do in the midst of a time where because so many of our coping mechanisms have been yanked out from under us that we're getting closer and closer to the end of our rope, getting closer and closer to the point where we just have to throw our hands up and say, God, I'm clay, please make me into something useful. That's a good that's a good short prayer for right now. Like, <laughs> maybe maybe then it is appropriate for us to transition to a prayer then. Sure. Will you pray with me, Seth? 
I would love to. Let's pray. Great Potter, you have a history of making beauty from ashes, breathing life into the dust. As we near the end of our rope, have mercy on us. Don't forget about us. Mold and make us into something beautiful once again. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one who became like clay for our sake, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're talking about the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark and John the Baptist. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it.